0: What's it like to be conned, Anna? <laughs> you feel a little dirty.
1: She was charm personified, immediately won me over with, with her easy manner.
2: She is the best there is. When it comes to making people believe her, she's the best there is.
0: is Fakes and Frauds. It's a series that unpacks Australia's literary scandals. One book at a time. I'm Sarah Lestrange, and in this episode, we're heading back to 2003. This is the year Australia went to war against Iraq alongside the United States, on the grounds that Saddam Hussein was harbouring weapons of mass destruction. And along came a book that seemed to explain the Middle East to the West. The book was Forbidden Love. It was a memoir by a woman called Norma Currie about her homeland, Jordan. It was so popular, it sold over 200,000 copies in Australia and around the world. And part of its success was down to its raw and direct account of Norma's friendship with Dahlia, and Dahlia's horrifying murder in a so-called honour killing. Now, as many as 5,000 honour killings are documented around the world each year, and they involve the murder of a female family member by male relatives. They're usually justified on the grounds that the woman or girl has brought shame on the family. This is Norma Currie speaking about the practice in Jordan at the time.
3: All they receive is just a few months probation and they're treated as heroes even if they do serve time. They don't serve time in a regular prison cell with the other criminals. They get special treatment and they're treated like heroes for upholding their family's honour.
0: It was about a really serious issue. But not long after Forbidden Love was published, questions were being asked about Norma Currie. Who was she? Where was she from? And was the book fact or fiction? In 2003, Norma was living in Australia after fleeing Jordan, and she was doing the interview rounds about her fascinating debut memoir. Everyone wanted to know about her life in Jordan and the fate of her friend Dahlia. I left Jordan
3: because I knew that in order to continue what it was I felt I needed to do, um, which was... Try and make the rest of the world aware of what was happening there and try and find a way to outlaw this type of practice that I wouldn't be able to do it from within the country without um, without being killed as a result.
0: In this ABC radio interview recorded in two thousand and three, the year the book came out, Norma went on to explain that after fleeing the Arab country of Jordan, she landed in Greece, which is where she started writing about her murdered friend. Norma was from a strict Christian family and Dahlia was from a strict Muslim family. Together, they ran a unisex hair salon in Jordan, which is where Dahlia met Michael, the man she fell in love with and would ultimately spell her doom. Dahlia paid the price for this love, Norma told us, when she was brutally murdered in an honour killing by her male relatives. Here's Norma again explaining why she wrote the book.
3: When I arrived in Greece, um, I had an appointment book from, from the salon that I'd taken with me um, because Dahlia had written certain things on certain dates that were special to us. and And all I had left were very few items of my time with her, my life there. And I felt that I was in a completely foreign world. It was just so different, the lifestyle, the country, the language, the people. And I felt like I was losing what little I had left of my life and my time with her. And so I sat down and wrote our story inside the appointment book. I had no idea at that time that I would publish it and it would be that big or, or even get to all the countries it's in now. Um, and then after speaking to the women, that my friends in Greece... Um, I realised that they're only a 45-minute flight away from Jordan, and yet they had no idea that these things were happening in Jordan. And that's when I became determined to try and get it published so that the rest of the world could know.
0: And it worked. The rest of the world did know now because the memoir was a bestseller. Readers couldn't get enough of Norma, and she became a spokesperson for the victims of honour killings in Jordan and even around the world. And then, word reached Jordan about this book, and the writer Rana Husseini. People were asking her whether she'd read Forbidden Love, this book about honour killings.
4: I'm a Jordanian author, human rights activist and senior reporter who works for the English Daily, the Jordan Times.
0: Rana Husseini was and still is an activist. She's worked for three decades reporting and advocating against the brutal murder of women in Jordan. So when she encountered Forbidden Love, she couldn't believe what she was reading.
4: From the first page when I started reading the book, I noticed the many, many errors. Like I was like, at almost every page there's something wrong in the in the book. So I thought to myself, I said, I'm going to start compiling because, you know, I believe in documentation. I believe in uh, bringing evidence and so forth. So I said, I'm going to start compiling a list to send it back to all these people because the amount of uh, errors and uh, generalizations and uh, mistakes in the book, you know, it's, it's remarkable.
0: Something had to be done. Runner worked with Dr. Amal Sabag from the advocacy body the Jordanian National Commission for Women. They went through Forbidden Love one page at a time and compiled a list of all the factual errors and inconsistencies. They thought the publisher needed to know that something wasn't right with the book.
4: Now, reading from uh, the factual error
0: list that we compiled... Runner still has that list from 20 years ago, and she shared it with me and looking at it it's extensive and it goes on for 12 pages
4: it was divided into several categories so geography and location in page two she states unlike the jordan river no longer strong enough to flow down in amman Uh, so our answer the jordan river never passed through amman it has always flown through the jordan valley Uh, In the same page, she states that Jordan is bordered by many countries and mentions Lebanon, Egypt and Kuwait, among others. The countries bordering Jordan are Syria, Iraq, Saudi Arabia and Palestine.
0: These are pretty basic mistakes. Mistakes about the basic geography of the country and mistakes Rana says a real Jordanian wouldn't make.
4: The language is something else. For example, page 56, she states, Dalia has warned the Sharia. Since Sharia, of course, is the Islamic religion, since she was 10, Sharia means Islamic jurisdiction, while the dress worn by some Muslim women is referred to as Shari'i, you know. So it's very, very, uh, it's strange. In page 80, she describes the word Thursday night in Arabic as Sihra, and the Arabic word is Sahra, not Sihra.
0: But it was the generalizations about Jordan, Arabs, and the Islamic religion that troubled Rana the most.
4: This was one of the most annoying, you know, sentences. I and mean, life was like all lives of Muslim women in Jordan. She, she had to. They had to serve men food, and then they will eat the leftovers. And this is ridiculous because in, in in Jordan, elsewhere in the Arab culture, first the women eat, and then the men eat. So it's the other way around. But you know, again, playing with the, with terminology, like all Muslim women in Jordan.
0: Yeah. What did you do with this? List of Inconsistencies.
4: You don't want me to read more?
0: That's it? No, no, that's (laughs) it. (laughs) (laughs) Because I won't have time for the rest of it otherwise.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, actually, we compiled the letter, the list, and we wrote a letter to the publishers, and uh, we sent it to Random House and to um, Simon & Schuster.
0: So Simon & Schuster published it in America and Random House published it in Australia. Yeah, Random House in Australia. What did they want to achieve with this letter? Well, they wanted the errors to be fixed on the one hand and Amal Sabagh particularly wanted Forbidden Love rebranded from memoir to fiction. But they didn't get anywhere with the publishers. The publishers were sticking by their author and their best-selling book. It was time to try a different approach, and this is when Australian journalist Malcolm Knox came into the picture.
1: Well, originally I had a, a call from David Ma, who was heading Media Watch at that time, and he'd been contacted by uh, some people who were alleging that the then best-selling non-fiction book, Memoir by Norma curie Forbidden Love, um, these people were telling David that it was a, a fraud
0: that's Malcolm Knox, and at the time he received this call from journalist David Marr, Malcolm was the literary editor of the Sydney Morning Herald.
1: They had been rebuffed by Random House, and uh, so they were they were contacting journalists over here um, as a kind of a last resort. Malcolm Knox contacted the publisher as
0: well after receiving the list from Rana Husseini and Amal Sabag.
1: They brushed me off essentially uh, as well.
0: Although it soon became apparent that Norma Khoury's Australian publisher didn't seem to have that much direct contact with her
1: either. It it turned out that the publisher here, Random House, didn't actually have a very, uh, Close connection with Norma. Um, they knew that she lived in Australia. She had got a visa to Australia as a distinguished international talent. She lived in hiding uh, somewhere in southeastern Queensland. But their face-to-face meetings with her prior to the book's publication had been minimal. And uh, so she was a bit of a, a bit of a figure of mystery even to her own publishers.
0: Unlike the publisher, though, Malcolm Knox was interested in the work that Rana Husseini and Amal Sabagh had done, cataloguing the many mistakes in Forbidden Love.
1: So all this added up to a sense of, well, Norma doesn't seem to be who she's saying she is, but that's only half of the story. The other half is, who is she? Who, who is she really? And look, after after that first year of investigation, I was pretty sure that she wasn't the Norma Currie she said she was, but I had no idea uh, who who she was really.
0: If only Malcolm could find out if Norma was who she said she was. But he had hit a dead end in the investigation and was waiting
1: until that missing link would be revealed until uh, Rana and um, Amal were able to supply me with a um, photocopy of an entry document uh, for Norma. Apparently Norma, the photo, resembled her, uh, going into Jordan a short time before the book was published. Uh, And this person had the name Norma Begain-Toliopoulos and she was an American citizen from Chicago.
0: So not Norma Currie but Norma Begain Toleopolis, and not Jordanian, but an American citizen. This was a huge find. It's what Malcolm had been waiting for. And it was definitely not part of the Norma Corey story that Norma had been selling at literary festivals and in interviews around Australia and beyond. She'd even travelled to the US for a publicity tour in 2003, claiming it was the first time she'd been to the country. The discovery of this entry document to Jordan gave Malcolm Knox the information he needed to pursue the story further, which meant a trip to the United States was on the cards and luckily Malcolm Knox was heading there for a friend's wedding a few months later.
1: So while I was in Chicago, I was able to... um, track down that name, Begain Toliopoulos, look uh, at um, addresses in the just in the white pages and go out and knock on a few doors. And um, that process uh, led to me stumbling uh, across Norma's family.
0: And Malcolm found himself standing face to face with Norma's brother.
1: You know, the first thing he said was... Um, look, you know, we we miss Norma uh, since she's gone away, but we really miss her kids. And uh, I thought, holy cow, Uh, the Norma who has presented herself as the the author of that book is a kind of a virgin warrior who um, can't even contemplate being near a man because of what she's seen in Jordan. Um, Certainly not the Norma Koori who was uh, selling herself to the public.
0: So she's not Norma Currie, not Jordanian, and now Malcolm discovers she's not a virgin warrior. Norma was married with kids. You'd think Malcolm Knox would be feeling jubilant at this point. He's done all of this work tracing Norma Currie and uncovering her true identity, and it's paid off.
1: I felt I was on the precipice of making a terrible error and, and this kind of thing, so much is at stake. If I had got the story wrong, um, it would have cost our newspaper millions of dollars in defamation. So I, I was not feeling triumphant at all. I was just very, very worried about getting it wrong.
0: It had come to the point where Malcolm needed to talk directly to Norma, and he managed to arrange a phone hookup with her via her Australian publisher,
1: she was charm personified. She was extremely smooth, um, immediately won me over with, with her, uh, y- you know, easy uh, manner. And um, she was telling me what, in retrospect, I realise is a, a, an absurd story. She said, I'd got it all wrong. Her name was uh, Norma Begain. Her father was this man, Majid, who had gone to Jordan and had his family there. Majid also had a family back in Chicago, um, and he had two wives, both were called Asma. There was the Chicago Asma, and that was the family I'd met, and there was the Jordanian Asma, um, who's a different woman, and he also had two different daughters, both named Norma, so the one Uh, Norma's brother Will had told me all about and showed me the photos of and had the children and was married to this Greek American guy. That was her half sister, a different Norma. And you know, she was such a good con artist. At the time we were having that phone call, I kind of believed her. And, um, we hung up after, I don't know, about half an hour, 45 minutes we'd been talking. I went to my editor and I said, look, maybe we should hold back on this story because here's what she's told me. And I, and I told them that story about the two asthmas and the two Normas. And they just looked at me and they said, you've been under a lot of stress. <laughs> and had a bit of a laugh. <laughs> so, you know, the, I think two days after that, uh, the story actually ran.
0: After 18 months of investigation, the headline in the Sydney Morning Herald read, Bestsellers Lies Exposed. It revealed that Norma's mother, Asthma, missed her dearly and didn't know why her daughter had disappeared from their lives in the year 2000. In that article, Norma still denied everything and still denied that she was married and had children. This was July 2004. And soon after that, Norma was on the run again, this time fleeing Australia for Chicago in the United States. Norma Curie's dream run as a best-selling non-fiction writer ended when her true life was exposed. That is, she's lived for most of her 34 years in the United States, paying only visits to Jordan after leaving there as a small child. Finally breaking her long silence last night, she told Channel 9 she had lied about much of her life story. And according to the author... That's okay.
3: When I wrote the memoir, I chose to write only about the, my time in Jordan, and, and I have literary license to do so, um, and that's what it is.
1: There was a new development about every day for something like four weeks after the initial story because the, the unraveling of the, of the Norma story showed um, that she was kind of more interesting in a way than a mere literary hoaxer. <music>
2: She'd left really a trail of broken hearts. I don't mean in a romantic sense, but the people who had published her book had really felt very warmly towards her and very protective of her. You know, you you left a meeting with Norma feeling like you had made a friend.
0: Along with Malcolm Knox, Carolyn Overington was awarded Australia's highest honour for journalism, a Walkley Award for her reporting on the Norma Currie affair. After Malcolm's original article was published, Caroline was brought on to do more digging. You see, Caroline was the New York correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and its Melbourne sister broadsheet, The Age. And at the time, she was based in Manhattan. So after Malcolm had uncovered Norma's true identity, Caroline headed to the state of Illinois to look into Norma's life in Chicago more deeply
2: one of the first things I did was went to the local courthouse and see whether, for example, there were any criminal charges or civil charges or court cases in which she had ever been involved. And once I started that process, it started to unravel quite quickly. From there, I met a detective who had been working on some of the cases in which she had been involved. And she had been, I could see, quite moved by some of the frauds that Norma was alleged to have committed, in particular against an elderly woman who was living in a nursing home in Chicago. And she stepped me through some of what she regarded as the offences that Norma had committed.
0: And what Caroline Overington discovered was extraordinary. Caroline found out that Norma was accused of stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars from her elderly neighbour, and was under investigation by the Chicago Police Department. In fact, there were cases of fraud going back a decade against Norma, and the police had compiled a file that was a metre high on Norma. But somehow before Norma could be issued with a warrant, she'd fled to Australia and re-emerged as a Jordanian feminist crusader and the best-selling author of Forbidden Love. She had left her mark on America and now Norma had left her mark on Australia too. Forbidden Love was withdrawn from sale, and the sequel, Coming Home, A Matter of Honour, was put on hold too, never to be published. But how did someone under investigation for real estate fraud become a best selling writer? Well, Caroline Overington doesn't think it's so strange.
2: She's a fabulist, isn't she? she? That's what she does. She invents stories about her own life, about the lives of other people. I mean, this was a woman who was able to plausibly deny being a mother.
0: She clearly has a remarkable talent. This remarkable talent might explain why Norma was able to fool so many in the book industry. Although Rana Husseini still wants to know why there weren't any references in a book that purported to be non-fiction. You see, Rana has also written a book about honour killings. It's an in-depth, well-researched and moving account called Murder in the Name of Honour. And she says it took her five
4: years to write and
0: find a publisher.
4: The publishing houses gave her the authority to say whatever she wants without any references. But this is not the way you go around publishing books. Caroline Overington agrees. Why did she not just write a novel? I mean, it would
2: would have been a great novel. Why she decided to present it as truth, I don't think we'll ever understand. I don't know that Norma herself understands. But it can't any longer be regarded as a truth-telling exercise. I mean, that's for certain.
0: After all of the revelations, Norma Corey, or maybe I should just call her Norma at this point, Well, she had always maintained that Dahlia was real and that she was murdered in an honour killing. So even though the book had been discredited and Norma's identity was exposed and she was back in the US with her children, this con artist still had a story to spin. What's it like to be conned, Anna? (laughs) You feel a little dirty, That's the Australian filmmaker Anna Bronowski, whose award winning documentary about Norma Corey, called Forbidden Lies, came out in 2007.
5: I first met her in a decaying uh, ballroom in a down at heel hotel in San Francisco, where I had arranged via a series of emails to fly her from an undisclosed location. She wouldn't tell us because at the time she was lying low, Malcolm Knox and Carolina. Overington's investigation had just come to light and she was supposedly somewhere in Chicago uh, collecting evidence to prove that Knox and Overington had got it wrong and she was not a liar. And I remember warning my crew. I said, this woman's not to be trusted. Hide your credit cards. Don't believe anything she says. And within about four hours of interviewing Norma, we were all in love. Um, I had decided that, in fact, Uh, Malcolm Knox and the media had got it wrong, that Norma had had really been trying to tell the truth, um, that she genuinely believed in stopping honour crimes and that she was going to prove to me on camera if I took her to Jordan that her story was true.
0: Although, as it would turn out, and what you'll hear next, Anna wasn't fooled for long.
5: It quickly became apparent that she was conning me too. All the witnesses that she'd promised me um, she would materialise when we went to Jordan, you know, the relatives of Dahlia, the dead woman that she'd written about, um, her sisters, her cousins, her uncles, all these people that that we had carefully planned our Jordan shoot around just kept uh, systematically
0: uh, not turning up. So Anna Bronowski's documentary about Norma Currie changed from being a story about honour killings to being about Norma Currie the con artist. And the film Forbidden Lies is powerful and unflinching. And it took my breath away.
5: And one of the reasons I was able to fund Forbidden Lies, and it had a very large budget at the time for a documentary, was because I was able to say to Palace Cinemas, who were one of the first investors on board and in in fact ran it in their cinemas all over Australia for quite a long time, um, you've got 200,000 plus angry readers here who have also been betrayed and conned by Norma and who are looking for some kind of catharsis and they are the audience for this film.
0: There are still unanswered questions from that time that have to do with Norma's visa to Australia and what the Australian government knew about her backstory... Did they know she was an American, that she was married and had children, even as she was presenting as an unmarried Jordanian?
3: They actually did background searches in all three countries, and they do have that on file. I never lied to them, which is why they're not pulling the visa, so they have all of my personal information.
0: Norma was saying that the Australian government knew she was married with children and that she came from America, which raised questions that didn't have immediate answers. There was speculation that Norma's book And Time in Australia was connected in some way to the much bigger battle that was taking place on the world stage, that is the invasion of Iraq in 2003, because of course Forbidden Love came out that year as well. Some even thought that it was part of a plot to demonise Arabic culture and the Middle East and to garner support for the war in the West.
2: You know I have heard that argument I've heard the argument that it was part of some kind of propaganda campaign and maybe Norma was even engaged by the CIA or or, or American forces are, to push that narrative so that people would become more comfortable with the invasion in Afghanistan and later in Iraq I don't believe that I think that <laughs> I think that's going way too far I think the story resonated with us because it was very human because it was she was a woman telling a story of trauma, I don't know that I necessarily buy the argument, I don't at all buy the argument, that it was part of a US government plot.
3: As George W. Bush returned from a weekend at his presidential retreat, his top officials were being accused of presenting bogus evidence on Iraq's weapons of mass destruction.
4: I would tell uh, those critics that it's nonsense, not bogus, Um, uh, and there can be no question that Iraq had and has Uh, had weapons of mass destruction.
5: Norma's book speaks to the idea that every crime tells us something about the time in which we live, every great crime. And Norma's fake book about the honour killing of a a Jordanian woman uh, by evil Arab men that came out just before the Iraq invasion wasn't just a crime. It also, uh, I suppose, highlights the labyrinth of truths and lies that was circulating around the invasion of Iraq at the time. Anna Bronowski. It spoke uh, well beyond the text to what we were all dealing with in the West. Um, With the WMD uh, line that, that the White House was peddling, but also a lot of us didn't know about the Middle East and suddenly we were being told by our government that we were going to join America and invade Iraq and readers were hungry, hungry to find out about what is this place that we're about to send our soldiers to and Norma's book brilliantly filled that void and she travelled the literary circuit uh, telling us, telling hungry readers the Middle East that she claimed she'd grown up in and what it was like.
0: It's 20 years since Forbidden Love was published. Since then, activist and journalist Rana Husseini, whose early investigation led to the unveiling of Norma's true identity, well, she has continued her work to stop the brutal murder of women in Jordan and has seen awareness and conditions for women improve dramatically in that time.
4: First of all, they changed the laws. Uh, Now, no one is getting away with killing a female relative uh, for reasons related to family honor, the judiciary's attitudes towards uh, femicide, towards uh, gender-based violence, has become very, very uh, serious. It's no longer just another woman or child who is harmed or killed. Uh, there's, the investigation is very thorough. It's taken very seriously. They opened several shelters. They've opened several uh, police uh, protection, family protection departments all over Jordan. To, to help uh, gender-based uh, violence survivors, um, the, the, the the awareness among the public has become very high in comparison to when I started. Now everybody knows, not everybody, but the majority of people knows about this problem. And the government themselves, the officials started to talk about violence against women openly, uh, about so-called honor killings. Even the royal family, the king and the queen, everybody's talking about it. If you go back to the 90s, when I first started, this didn't exist. This has all changed. The
0: scandal of Norma Koori and Forbidden Love left its mark on the cultural landscape of the 2000s. But how does it compare to other literary scandals? Not just in its motivation, but in its fallout. I put the question to journalist and author Carolyn Overington.
2: Australia has such a wonderful tradition of literary hoaxes. We've had some that have been hugely enjoyable for everybody and we've had others. And I think this falls into that category that are traumatising for almost everybody involved because people were hurt. And it's not just that Norma hurt people before we got to know who she really was. She hurt people who came into contact with her as a result of this book, And that's why I think this is a difficult one for Australians to absorb. It wasn't a lark. It wasn't done for fun. It wasn't done for the amusement of book readers. It was done for reasons that I think we don't really understand
0: and which continue to trouble us. But what about the publishers in this story? What responsibility do they have in checking the backgrounds of their authors, in checking that they are who they say they are? Malcolm Knox.
1: Publishers applied much more rigorous standards of uh, fact-checking towards their authors. Really, Random House in this case had um, taken Norma's word for it in in everything she said. Um, I would like to think that when uh, letters were delivered to publishers from people like Amal al-Sabah and Rana Hussaini, from that point, they were treated more seriously. And in my experience, publishers... Have um, become more uh, aware of their, their their liabilities, rather than just putting it back on the author, as as contracts do. You know, the author is the one who has to issue a warranty of truth in a publishing contract, um, but the embarrassment to the publisher is such that even if they're not legally at fault. Uh, they still have to hold the author accountable um, if they're writing nonfiction, uh, accountable for the truth of what they're writing. And you know, the cynical could say that well, Random House made a lot of money out of the book, um, so uh, you know they could they could just wash their hands of it and move on. I think it did leave a legacy um, of uh, of greater rigor. We
0: know Norma moved back to the US in 2004, so she must be in her 50s now. But true to form, we don't know
1: exactly what she's been up to. As far as I know, Norma went on to work in real estate in um, the state of Illinois and began a new life and uh, became a a grandmother and uh, I hope has has settled down to a, a happy life with all of her misdeeds long behind her.
0: The last time I
2: saw Norma, I asked her what she was doing and she was working as a used car saleswoman. She was working in a used car yard. And I I don't like to play into the stereotypes of used car salesmen always selling you a lemon, but there was something about it that seemed perfect.
5: Well, um, last time I saw her physically it was to record the making of for the film and she she hadn't seen the film and of course i was terrified what she'd think and i sat down with her and and we recorded the making of together and that that became a whole new film because she just came out with one new far-fetched story after another to defend herself and the lies that she was exposed over in the film. Um, And at that time, she was working in a bank. uh, She was living in a new townhouse with her two kids and a ferret and one-legged, three-legged dog. Um, And uh, since then, I understand she has married a banker and has another child and um, is, is having a pretty good life.
0: After 20 years, though, wouldn't it be good to know why Norma really wrote the book and spun that incredible fake story. Maybe one day, Anna Bronowski will find out.
5: Norma herself has said to me jokingly many times, we're still friends on Facebook, oh, you know, if you come to Chicago again, we'll finish the chess game and I'll tell you why I really did
0: it. In the next episode of Fakes and Frauds... I dig into the controversy behind a book you might not have heard of. I certainly hadn't, and I wish I could unread it. It's Mutant Message Down Under by American writer Marlo Morgan. It was a best-selling New Age title in the 90s. However, all was not as it seemed, and it took a campaign by an Aboriginal collective to expose the lies behind the book. You don't want to miss that one. I'm Sarah Lestrange. Thanks to Rosa Ellen and Claire Nicholls. The sound engineer was Angie Grant. The executive producer is Rhiannon Brown. You can catch all of the episodes of Fakes and Frauds as they roll out on the ABC Listen app. Thanks for listening.